0: Amen. And if you would, if you have your Bible, please open with me to the book of Titus. In the Old Testament, sorry, in the New Testament. The book of Titus, we're going to be in chapter 2 today. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Um, and for those of you who uh, got the email and went through the devotional that we had last week because there was no service because of weather, um, we're going to kind of pick up and, and expound upon that devotion And so I hope and pray that you took the time to actually go through it, to read it, to talk about it uh, with your family. And before we get to the text today, I want to share a story with you. About six years ago, I found myself coaching a soccer team uh, through a ministry that our church was launching. And that soccer team was comprised of six, seven, and eight year old children. I had a group of about 14 six, seven, and eight year old kids. Um, You may be sitting there thinking, why on earth did you take over coaching a team of small children? Well, coaching uh, soccer in that moment really seemed like a perfect opportunity for myself to connect with our two oldest kids who at that time fell in that age bracket, so Esther and Israel. And I also wanted to use that opportunity to connect with families who might not have heard the gospel and encountered Christ for the first time. Now, I don't know if you've ever witnessed a group of young kids in a soccer game, but it is nothing short of chaos. It is absolute chaos. Now, I'm talking about a whirlwind of tiny little athletes that are swarming around a ball with their limbs flailing all over the place with uncoordinated enthusiasm. Like, this is children's soccer. Now, amidst all of the commotion... There is always one child, always, without fail, there is one child that gets enamored with counting clouds or, or diligently observing the movement of an ant that no one else can see. Every game, without fail, there was at least one child. Now, I want you to picture with me for a moment. Picture with me a squad of kids resembling a pack of Labrador Retrievers, okay? There's loud barking, there's excited frolicking, and then they chase after the elusive soccer ball. This is the scene that is before us week in and week out for eight weeks of this soccer season, right? But that scene captures the very essence of a pure, unbridled enthusiasm that each child has the spirit of, of youthful exuberance and they're thrilled by the game. We can, it doesn't matter if they ever touch the ball, they are excited to be there. Now, when you coach kids at that age, you don't come up with structured plays that they're gonna run. They would fail miserably every time. You don't, but you have three goals for the season. Just, just three simple goals. They're not going to come to the screen, but I'm going to walk through them because they're super important to what we're talking about today. The very first goal coaching children at that age is that you want all of them to go in the right direction, okay? You want all of the kids to go in the right direction. Every single week at kickoff during halftime, this, this ritual almost unfolded where you would gather the entire team around, And you would ask the fundamental question, now which goal are we aiming for? Which direction are we headed? And without fail, time and time and time again, one kid would always point in the wrong direction. Always. And more often than not, it was one of our kids that was pointing in the wrong direction. And since she's not in here, I will tell you it was Esther. (laughs) Esther was always pointing in the wrong direction. Now, when the game started, she always put the ball in the right goal. But every time, without fail, she pointed in the wrong direction. And then the inevitable would happen. Some kid on that team would follow the instructions of our six-year-old daughter, and they would score a goal on the opposing person's side. Every time. And in that moment, that child looks to you, and there's a realization that dawns on them. And they want reassurance with these wide dark eyes, they're looking for encouragement that they did the right thing. And in those instances, as a coach with six, seven, and eight-year-old kids, all you can do is cheer them on. That's all you can do. You cheer on these kids because in the end, the beauty of the game of soccer lies not just in scoring goals. It's really in the journey of discovery. It's in learning. It's in camaraderie that's really shared on the field during the game. And so you want them to move in the same direction. The second goal I had every time I coached this group was don't walk off the field in the middle of the game. Don't do it. Because on more than one occasion, believe it or not, I witnessed a player reach the end of the soccer field and they spot something and they just decide to continue on their journey and just walk 100 yards away from where you're playing. Now, it's, it's kind of a delightful Um, spectacle, a child's curiosity. It really is because it propels them forward and they're completely oblivious to the, the confines of the game. Which leads me to say that my third goal was always the most difficult because I wanted to teach them there was a such thing as positions in soccer. And kids at that age, they rarely get that there are positions. They just want to swarm to the ball. And I'm trying to explain to them that the game is more fun if they actually play the positions that I put them in. Plus, there's something very special to the game when they do. They might actually just win if they play the way that we practiced it. Now, why do I share uh, this experience and story with you? One, for a little bit of laughter. Um, But two... Similar to how I guided those kids each and every game. Paul assumes a coaching role that we're going to see in Titus chapter 2. And in this section that we're going to cover this morning, he lays out these specialized instructions that are tailored to various groups inside the church. I mean, he addresses everyone from the retired individual to the young man, to the young man from the homemaker to the business leader. And Paul's objective remains consistent throughout to guide them in three crucial aspects. Now, in just a moment, they're gonna hit the screen for you. And today's structure uh, of my sermon is gonna be a little bit different than what I typically do. And so I want, I'm gonna give you all three of the points up front, and then I'm gonna break them down throughout the rest of the sermon. And so for you note-takers, Paul gives us three objectives. The first is that he wants Christians to align themselves with the directions that are outlined by the gospel. That's the first direction that he gives. The second is that he wants us staying on the field until the game concludes. He wants us to continue participating. And the last one is that he wants us to fulfill our designated roles without unnecessary conflict. Now, if you would just hang on that slide. For those who are note takers. And so as we dive into these instructions. I want us to take note this morning. Of the framework that Paul uses to convey these three vital teachings. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. And I'm going to pick up in verse number 1. He starts out by saying. But as for you. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Just hang tight right there. He's saying Titus teach sound doctrine. That's the very first thing that he says. No, specifically, what is sound doctrine? What is sound doctrine? And I'm, I'm going to give you the, the long and short of it. It's the gospel. Sound doctrine is everything that is taught right here in this. Not our perception of what is taught, but what truly is taught here in the Bible. That's what sound doctrine is. And he says, Titus, I want you to teach your congregation the things that are an appropriate response to sound doctrine. And as I was studying this out over the last couple of weeks and even spent this last week going back through these notes, I almost felt like this specific piece was a call to myself as your pastor. Pastor, teach your congregation sound doctrine. And and not to pat myself on the back, but church, I believe for the last three years that's what we've been doing. We've been teaching you sound doctrine. We've been getting away from anything that the culture says and twists in scripture and going back to the very foundations that we see here in the word. Foundations. And so church, I want to say this to you. At the end of these instructions, Paul says to the believer, do all of these things because the grace of God has appeared to you. Do all of them because the grace of God has appeared to you. Now, Paul underscores these principles on both sides of his list, and he emphasizes a fundamental truth to us. You know, every facet of our lives should undergo a transformative process. Every facet. And it should be influenced by our encounter with the gospel day in and day out in our lives. This point, Christian in here, church, this point cannot be stressed enough Christianity is not merely a checklist of tasks that are demanding increased effort. Christianity is not a collection of morals to perfect or rituals to adopt. From the very inception to its culmination, Christianity is a response to the unmerited grace that has been given to you by God. That's what Christianity is. And here, in the rest of what we're going to cover today, is going to be how that translates into living counter-culturally. And so let's look at verse number two. He says, older men are to be sober-minded. They are to be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now I want us to stop there because I want to unpack each one of these sections this morning. And there's a caveat here in verse number two. So please, before I say anything else, I want you to understand that in giving these specific instructions, I'm not trying to stereotype in any way, shape, or form to say that all older men are this way. But each group that we're going to see today in the text brings a particular temptation in that group. And a lot of what Paul says first to these older men, he repeats to the other groups. But there is one specific instruction that he uniquely gives to older men. Paul says, men, at the very end of verse 2, he says, men, you are to remain in steadfastness. You are to be steadfast in this life. For you older men in here, those who are watching online and couldn't be here with us this morning, there is an alluring temptation there's an alluring temptation for you older man. And that is the temptation to coast. The temptation to coast in the last third of your life. The the fatigue begins to set in because of retirement age. You have a sense of having accomplished enough and it begins to take root whether you've amassed some sufficient wealth in your lifetime or you've decided to relinquish certain pursuits. The inclination is to shift our focus inward and we engage in what we want, when we want it, how we want it. It's my personal hobby. It's my time now. It's my interests. And the weariness of dedicating ourselves to serving others begins to surface. And it leads to a potential descent into cynicism. And to be honest with you, it is an inevitable outcome when we become self-focused to become grumpy and cynical. That's exactly what happens. And in response, Paul implores the older man And if you're asking me, well, what's the age for the older man? If you're asking me this question, it's probably you. He says, older man, endure. Stay in the game. Resist the allure of complacency. But he didn't just say that. He also said, older man, be self-controlled. Don't think about your desires. Second your desires to the needs of your spouse if you have one to your family, to the needs of the church, to the needs of the generations that are coming up behind you. Be self-controlled in this way. Your life's accomplishments should not be a pile of money that's left in a bank account. It should be seeing the kingdom of God thriving in the generations that are coming after you. That's really what you should be doing. I don't mean to sound crass in any way To be honest with you, it's quite difficult being a young pastor and asking those who are my senior to follow these instructions. Don't give the last years of your life to fishing. Don't give the last years of your life to golfing or collecting toys. Give the last years of your life to the kingdom of God. Be self-controlled. He also said, older men, be sound in faith. Be sound in faith. Do you know what Paul was really saying? Don't be a cynic. Don't be cynical. Be sound in faith. Do you know how many times I've heard, in fact, we were at a conference, a few of us were at a conference yesterday, and I laughed because the speaker of the conference said something I was going to say this morning He said, oftentimes as we begin to age, we fall into this category of the older man or even sometimes the older woman and we're like, well, I just don't understand the young people. They're destroying our country. The world's just going to hell in a handbasket, right? We've all thought those things. We've all said those things. And we forget the fact that God's promises have not ceased to be true because of what culture is doing around us. God resurrected his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. He resurrected him, and he has a plan that he is pursuing in the world, and he doesn't give up on that plan. He didn't give up on Jesus' body when it was cold and laying in the grave for three days. He's not going to give up on this generation or even the next one. He has a plan, and he's going to see it through. I love what Philippians 1.6 says. That he who began a good work will see it through to the day of completion. And that is the day of Jesus Christ. means the day that he returns. And so church, be sound in faith. Don't give up on the promises of God. He also said, older man, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Don't give yourselves to numbing things. Alcohol. Drugs, pornography. Don't give yourself to the things that numb you because the the things that people abuse, sex, relationships, any of those, you want to know why they abuse them? Because they feel they have no purpose. They feel they have no purpose. That's why they abuse drugs and alcohol and sex. You, Christian, you have something to live for. If you're lying In a nursing home, in the last weeks of your life, and you're still breathing, you're still a part of the greatest mission on this earth. And if nothing else, you can lay in that bed and be a prayer warrior for it. Don't stop, older man. Don't stop. If we go back to the Old Testament, there's a compelling illustration of enduring faith. Probably one of my favorite in the Old Testament of this. And it's embodied by none other than a young man at the time whose name is Caleb. How many of you in here know the story of Caleb? All three of you, that's great. You should go back and read the Old Testament. Caleb was one of the young men, aside from Joshua, who was sent into the land of Canaan. And when they saw the giants, when all of the other men said we shouldn't go into the land of Canaan because of these giants, Caleb said no we should because God is on our side. We should go into the land of Canaan. Do you know that Caleb was one of very few individuals that actually made it into the promised land? All of the older people, older than Caleb, they died because they didn't believe in the promises of God. They didn't follow the promises of God. And here we have Caleb, a man who served God with steadfastness. And as a witness, he says, God's promises don't expire. I've experienced that God's promises do not end. And guess what, Christian? If you're in here and you say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, you have a greater motivation to persevere than Caleb did. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus occurred. That's why you have a greater motivation. And it stands as an assurance to you and I still to this day that every effort invested into God's kingdom is not done so in vain. It's not. You and I are supposed to be the builders of God's kingdom that is destined for victory. It's destined. A kingdom that will endure eternally. You know, Jesus declared that even a simple act of offering a cup of water in his name has a lasting impact. And so, before I transition to the next group There is a call here for older men within this church to step into the role that was exemplified by Caleb. You are to display enduring faith. You are to contribute to the eternal work of God's kingdom. And so older men, lead in your serving. Lead in your serving. Mentor the younger men here in this church. Invest in the people that are coming up after you bring them along in this journey there was a man by the name of Henry Ward Beecher that said it is not the going out of port but the coming in that determines the success of the voyage it's the coming in so finish strong older man finish strong let's look now at verse number three ladies you're not off the hook he says older women And if you ask me to age that, I'm going to tell you no. (laughs) Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Stop right there. During a conversation with a pastor friend of mine, uh, I was talking with him about this specific passage and uh, he's an older gentleman. And I asked him, what am I supposed to say when I get to the part where it addresses older women? Um, what am I supposed to say? And, and he shared a perspective with me uh, that has stayed with me ever since the conversation. And so if you don't like the perspective, you can take it up with him. I'm Don't shoot the messenger, okay? He said, reflecting on that term reverent which means respectful, by the way. Reverent means respectful. He remarked that older women can sometimes reach a point where they cease to be overly concerned about others. Consequently, they lose their filters. Does that speak to anybody in your life? If it doesn't, it might be you, woman, Um, in here. He said that they oftentimes will express their thoughts and speak negatively about people as they age. He then continued to say to me that when these women were in their youthful age, they possessed two things that age tends to erode. He said that these women had natural physical beauty and they had filters. They had beauty, and they had filters. And he said that as they fade away, if you harbor an unkind spirit, there is nothing left that conceals it. Nothing at all. And as I thought about what he said, as I thought about it, it played over and over in my head, and I I came to this conclusion that in reality... If there was an unkind spirit and physical beauty and filters are no longer covering it, then that spirit was always present inside of them. It was always there. It was just concealed beneath a veneer of that beauty and those filters I mean, conversely, I from them that they appeared whose sweetness just radiated so genuinely from them that they appeared more beautiful in their later years than what they did when they were a a teenager or a young adult. And that enhanced beauty, that's attributed to godly character shining through them. That's what it is. It emphasizes that, that character holds a, a great allure than mere physical charm. And as we think about that, there's a thought or a question really that is posed. And this is not just for the older women in here. But Christian, what would be revealed if your spirit was laid bare? If it was untouched, by any physical beauty or, or, or charm or filters, what what would your spirit bear? You know, my, my wife and I talk um, a lot about wanting to age well, and we 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 aspire. There have been couples in our lives that have modeled godliness. In, in such a profound way to us. And we aspire to be these sweet, beautiful, gracious individuals when we age. We aspire to that. And while my wife seems to be on a better path. I find myself facing a challenge on a, on a pretty regular basis. I am seldom described as sweet. I'm seldom I'm described as, as sweet. However, this, this transformation doesn't occur by chance. It doesn't. It necessitates the intentional cultivation of character through the gospel, through my time with the Lord. And it brings us to this place where not just my wife and I, because we're the the mom and dad of the church, but it brings the Christian to a place where you and I are required to avoid the pitfalls of negative behavior. We're required as Christians. It's a reminder to us that there is a responsibility for being perceived as less than pleasant at 80, and that lies squarely in your actions in you and you yielding to the Holy Spirit's work in your life listen I wish I wish with everything in me that I could force you to act godly but I can't I can't do it I wish that I could force you to pick up your Bible and experience a relationship with God that's life-changing, but I can't do that. I wish I could. In fact, I often beg God, can't, can't I just force them to see how good you truly are? But I can't, church. It's up to you. You have to avoid the pitfalls by fostering and cultivating a relationship with Jesus Christ. Which leads me to verse number four. And Paul says, and so train. So these older women, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Don't be slaves to wine. Teach what is good in verse four. So train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled and pure and working at home and kind and submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. You know, there is a prevalent assumption that passages just like these in the Bible advocate for male dominance. However, is that truly what Paul was saying here? it? Is it? I mean, the phrase working at home doesn't imply that young women are prohibited from working outside of the home. I mean, instead, it suggests a common tendency for for both young men and even young women to be enticed away from God-assigned responsibilities in pursuit of fulfillment outside of the home. You know, undoubtedly, God has, has definitely entrusted mothers with a distinct role inside the home. Amen? He's entrusted mothers. And he often, because of that entrusting, it often demands a sacrifice in other areas of life. It just does. That might mean that you have to reduce the time dedicated to a, a career, or maybe even forsaking a career altogether, and that results oftentimes in a palpable sense of loss for women. And yet the gospel message from God is so clear that whether young, old, man, or woman, the primary objective should not be personal fulfillment but faithful service to God. And where faithful service to God is, sacrifice is often required. I mean, sacrifice for the, the betterment of God's kingdom should be embraced joyfully. We really should find our fulfillment in serving God rather than self-actualization. You know, there's a, there's a contrast between the values of the world and the values of the kingdom of God. Do you, you guys agree with that? There's a contrast between the world and, and, and godliness. There's this call that we are to prioritize faithfulness in our relationship with God. How many of you in here um, watch the news in any capacity? It doesn't matter. Maybe you listen to it, right? Does anyone in here know a, an author, um, an activist, and a lawyer by the name of Linda Hirschman? Anybody? Linda Hirschman. Great. I'm going to share a story. A couple of years ago, now Linda is a prominent activist and lawyer. Um, Linda Hirschman was on the uh, news outlet Good Morning America. You guys know what that is, right? Um, She was on Good Morning America, and they were interviewing her uh, about something similar to this topic. And Linda said that homemakers are living lesser lives. Homemakers are living lesser lives. Lives To which one of the news anchors replied, but many of them find their work valuable. The homemaker finds their work valuable. And this was her reply to that statement. She said, I would like to see a description of their daily lives that substantiates that. It doesn't sound interesting for an educated person. Linda Hirschman writes and advocates for for those who would rather lay aside their home responsibilities and she thinks that she's empowering women because she says those things. But I want to get behind her statement for a minute. Her statement indicates that she believes that happiness and fulfillment only come from self-actualization. But consider this, do you know where that mentality leads? If life and fulfillment are about self and only about self, then the people who stand in your way of you becoming all you think that you can be, they become annoyances that need to be minimized or people that need to be managed. You start to think about your kids as accessories to your life rather than people that you would lay your life down for. If you get pregnant and it's not convenient, just abort the baby. If, they, if you, you get married and your spouse gets in the way of your career, just get rid of your spouse. You have kids and they get in the way of something that you want to accomplish, just ship those kids off to somebody else. If your parents in their older age become a hindrance, well, just shove them in a nursing home and forget about them. I mean, if you're not a good friend, if you're not constantly sizing them up and how this person is pushing you towards your goal, Hirschman's mentality leads not to empowering women. It leads us to use people rather than love them. And for the Christian... True fulfillment is discovered in serving God and other people in the sphere that God has placed you rather than seeking your own personal desires and fulfillment. And that path of fulfillment often, not always, but it often entails sacrifice. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, there was a compelling model for that approach, and his name was Jesus Christ. Who discovered fulfillment in the seemingly insignificant act, even of washing someone's feet? Jesus precisely did the act of washing feet because the Father directed him to do it. And the importance of the task itself did not dictate Jesus' fulfillment. Rather, it was derived from the approval of God. And in the same vein, if God has designated a season of life for individuals to care for children or establish a home or care for their elderly parents, then their fulfillment should be rooted in the knowledge of being a faithful servant rather than seeking validation from the world around them. Christian, I want you to look up here for a moment. Your fulfillment should be hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. And while Paul unpacks this and speaks this to the older women into the the new women, everything that I said today applies to the dads too. You know, there are a lot of things that I can't do because of some roles that God has assigned me to do in this life. Two Sundays ago, and again, last night, uh, a very close personal friend of mine, um, their family uh, got together with us, and they're a family that actually attended the church where I was on staff in Florida for 10 years, and they ended up moving to Plainfield here in Michigan. And so we, we get to see them on occasion. And uh, when our schedules allow, and, and he, um, we, we kind of just pick up. He's one of those, those people for me where I can just kind of pick up right where we left off. It doesn't matter if it's been six days or six months. We just kind of pick right back up and we just keep on walking. And he walks up, gives me this really big hug as he does every single time I see him. And the first question out of his mouth was, how are the books that you're writing going? And I'm like, of course you'd ask, so now I have to unpack, you know, what's going on. And I proceed to tell him, you know, I got one book finished. It's being edited, hopefully to be published in in the next six weeks. And my second book, I just went back and butchered the whole thing and broke it up into three separate books. So it's not going well, so you can pray for me. But then I stopped for a moment and I said, that's, that's actually not the question that he was asking. And I said, his name is Robbie. And I was like, Robbie, I was like, I can write a really good bit. I don't sleep well. And um, in, in order to keep my mind active, I read and I write consistently all the time. I just read and write. And I said, I can write a good bit, but but Bree and I have a very a very clear understanding that writing um, only fits in at the margins of my calling as a husband and as a father and as a pastor and as a son. Bree and I don't go out all the time without our kids. We, We don't leave our children a ton at home or with with sitters. We don't go away all the time on guys' weekends and and girls' weekends. Why? Because we get one season with our children. We get one season. And the other day, I found myself, as, as silly as this may sound to you, I found myself comparing the plot qualities between Disney's movie Frozen and Disney's Tangled. That's what I found myself talking about and, and thinking about and arguing the superiority of the plot line of Tangled. And then I realized that my entertainment diet is not everything that it used to be. But it's okay. That's okay with me. Because one day I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And it's okay if for a season I'm not fulfilled by my movie choices because faithfulness is my goal. One day... When we get to heaven, everything that we built and accomplished will be turned off. For me, the size of this church and the number of books that I wrote and the number of people that I invested, all of those things are not going to be anything in the grand scheme of all. And the only light that will be left on when I'm standing before my creator will be the light of faithfulness. And that's what I want to live for. And, Christian, in here this morning, that's what I want you to live for because in heaven we are not rewarded for our accomplishments here on this earth but by our faithfulness. And Paul said, and he urged these young women, that a part of your faithfulness is to be subject to your husbands. What does that even mean? What does that even mean to be subject to your husband? I'm going to hopefully um, explain in a nutshell. Bree and I have been together for 17 years. And I have learned in that 17 years and in 15 years of marriage, that marriage is a dance. Sometimes you stumble Sometimes you step on each other's feet and you get angry because it happened. But it's a dance because both partners are to reenact parts of the gospel. The husband does this by loving the wife like Christ loved the church. And that means that we put our needs ahead of or we put her needs, sorry, ahead of our own needs to the point that we would lay down our life for our wife. And the wife does it by submitting to her husband. A topic that throws our modern church culture into a frenzy. Submitting to your husband has nothing to do with superiority nothing at all. It has to do with positions that we play to reenact the Trinity and the gospel. And when you do that, wife, it's beautiful. Why? Because it shows the character of Jesus, and Jesus is beautiful. You know, a husband... Sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world would never look at and say that's disgusting and archaic. Never. I've been in ministry a long time and a lot of people who say they are turned off by the Christian teaching of of headship within marriage are attracted by the Christian marriages that they see. They're attracted to them. My my spiritual headship in our home is not about me dominating my wife. My wife. And if you truly love your wife, and if I truly love my wife like Christ loves the church, I will voluntarily lose nine out of ten arguments about preference. Why? Because I'm putting her needs above mine. I'm putting her needs above mine. And what she does in response to the gospel is to yield to me a decision-making responsibility which God has given more for our family. The man lays down his life and the woman submitting to uh, her husband. These are ways that we adorn the gospel. It's how we adorn the gospel. And Paul says, this is what you have to do if you want people to see me in you. Now I want you to look at verse number 6. He says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that none can be condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. When Paul said likewise, before he started to address it, he means that the general spirit of every single thing that I just said to the younger women and the older women and the older men, that applies to you younger men too. Everything. And then he adds this special instruction. You know, remarkably, that the singular piece of advice that Paul specifically directed at young men was to be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Do you know why that is? Why did Paul specifically say, be self-controlled? Because if we were to distill the Achilles heel of most young men, it often boils down to this, being governed by desire. That's what it boils down to. Be it recognition or wealth or even sexual pursuits. And the pivotal point emphasized is the ability to master one's passions and resist the pull of unchecked desires. So, self control has the potential to transform a person into someone that God can work mightily through. Channeling strength and an ability for God's greater purposes. How many of you in here know who D.L. Moody is? Probably one of the greatest influential theologians of our last two centuries. D.L. Moody said that the world has yet to see what God can do with one man or woman when they are sold out to him. The world has yet to see. You know, by contrast, the writer of Hebrews, or sorry, the writer of Proverbs said this, it's going to come to the screen, that a man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. A man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. Man, think of that imagery. Will you leave that verse there for just a moment? Think of the imagery that he was speaking about. It doesn't matter, he says, how smart the citizens are. It doesn't matter how valiant the soldiers are if there are no walls. Young men... Your enemy knows that he can destroy you at any time. He just comes knocking. He just comes knocking. Another giant of the faith, a man by the name of J.C. Riley, he said this, that being ruled by the desires of your body will murder your soul. They will murder your soul. And so guys in here, young and old alike, you start to fantasize about a girl's body, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Your pride is holding you up in your job or in your marriage, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. When when you're fighting with your spouse over something that will not matter for all of eternity, turn to Christ. Because saying yes to the grace of God will teach you to say no to ungodliness. It will teach you to say no to worldly lusts. It will teach you to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, right here, right now. And I want to cover these last two verses before we close. So let's go to verse number nine. So he ends this part by saying, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleased, are well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So taking everything that we've talked about already this morning, Paul ends this section for the people that work in any capacity. And he says that our work should put our hope and love on display for the people around us. You know, I told you before that people seem confused about what it means to be a Christian in the workplace in some capacity. You start talking with your coworkers about worshiping God, and they think they, that you mean opening up a coffee shop called Jehovah-Java or opening up a coffee shop called Hebrews, right? But Paul's point to a set uh, of, of attitudes, he says, believer, you should have these attitudes because of the upward and backward and forward look of the gospel. He says that this, uh, this moment in time creates four attitudes that we should see in our work. And so I'm going to quickly walk through these four attitudes and I'm going to use, use four maybe different words, but they are really comprised of everything that we've read thus far. And so these are four, for the you note takers, these are four attitudes uh, that you should have while you work in any capacity whatsoever. And so the first one is integrity. The first one is integrity. When when they can get away paul said with pilfering you don't because god sees you you don't you follow the instructions you follow the rules that your employer has put in place that don't go against the word of god why because god sees you so it doesn't matter if nobody's looking be a man or a woman of integrity be a man or a woman of excellence of excellence You know, they're not just doing the minimum required to get by. They're trying to bless their employers or the people they work with. And so I have a question for you. Are you doing the minimum required in your job to get by? Or are you trying to bless your employers and the people that you work with? Are you trying to bless them? The next one is servanthood. Servanthood. You know, you see our work as an act of service towards other people. You know, all throughout this letter, Paul talked about seeking the common good. And one of the distinctive things about the Christian approach to work is that believers see it as an act of service towards the world. Servanthood. And the last one is an attitude of hope. You know, for a believer, work should not define you. And all God's people said, work should not define you. And because it doesn't define us, it often leads us to not take our work too seriously. It often leads us to places where we will at times, because of our sinfulness, cheat to get ahead. Christian, your identity is not found in the career that you have or the job that you work at. Apart from God, your work will often become your identity. Maybe you realize this or not, but that's typically the second question that we ask people when we meet them. What's your name and what do you do for a living? The first two questions that we ask them. And if if someone asks you that question and you don't have a good answer, we have a a tendency to come up with titles that make us sound more important. But Christian, in here this morning, you are not defined by a position on a flow chart. You are defined by your position in Christ. And when you do these four things, as verse number 10 said, Paul said you would adorn the doctrine of God. You would adorn it. Do you want to know how to be a good witness in the workplace? That's it. You want to know how to be a good witness with your marriage? You want to know how to be a good witness as a husband or a wife or a parent? That's it. The way that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior is by integrity, excellence, servanthood, and hope. And if you work and live and walk this way, you will have no problems having opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Why? Because they will come and ask you. They will come and ask you, these values are so completely countercultural that people will notice. They'll notice. There was a, an author by the name of Tim Chester, and he said this in, in a book that I just read recently that's going to come to the screen. It says that people may not like it when we talk about self-control and submission, but they find it attractive when we live it. Unbelievers who are repelled by the Christian teaching on headship within marriage are attracted by the Christian marriages they see. Unbelievers who find Christian morality restrictive, they are attracted by the good lives of the Christians that they know. And so believer in here, your Christianity is best measured by your relationships at home and at work and in your private life. I'm going to say something to you with all the love in the world, for the believer, miraculous power comes through mundane faithfulness. Through mundane faithfulness. Don't look at what we saw today as a new to-do list for you, believer. It is a natural fruit of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so I want to challenge you with this as I, as I lean towards prayer. I'm challenging you to plant yourself more thoroughly in the gospel. I want you to, to see yourself and how the grace of God has appeared. Learn constantly to look upward to the glory of God who saved you. Lean in to the backwardness of the gospel, to the price that God paid for you through sending his son to the cross. And look forward to what God is making you into and what he has for you in the future. And when you do that, I will guarantee when you do that, that these things will grow naturally in your heart. They will grow naturally in you. Why? because you're no longer focused on self. You're looking to Christ. And as the writer of Hebrews said, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts. We reflect on this extraordinary uh, lesson that we have seen in the word of God, and we're reminded of the simplicity and the, the beauty found in just aligning ourselves with the gospel's direction we pray Lord that our lives would be living testimonies as a a response to your unmerited grace I lift up to you this morning the older men the ones that are facing the temptation to coast in the last third of their life God I'm asking that you would give them endurance Lord help them to stay in the game to resist selfish pursuits and and to find fulfillment in contributing to your kingdom work. I lift up to you the older women. And with all the love in the world, Lord, I ask that you would shape them to be sweet. Shape them to be beautiful and, and gracious individuals. Cultivate character in them through the gospel and help them, Lord, to have the strength to avoid the traps of negativity and gossip. I lift up to you the young men and the young women. Lord, through preaching and and teaching and Bible reading, instill in the young men and women the importance of self-control. Give them the strength, Holy Spirit, to deny unchecked desires and find fulfillment in serving you and the people around them. Lord, I ask that each one of us, no matter where we find ourselves, would be a reflection of your hope and your integrity, your excellence and your servanthood as we adorn the doctrine of God. And in our marriages, Lord, empower us to live counterculturally. As we close, I pray that the fruit of the gospel would grow naturally in our hearts. I pray that our our mundane faithfulness becomes a testimony of your miraculous power. And we ask and we, we pray these things in the mighty and precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.